This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. If a doctor or nurse suspects a patient has been abused, they must tell law enforcement. But Colorado's mandatory reporting law changes a bit tomorrow. Victims' advocates thought it was doing more harm than good. Here to explain is State Representative Denea Esgar, the Pueblo Democrat co-sponsored this bipartisan legislation, and Dr. Zach Wachtel from the Colorado Academy of Family Physicians, which backed the effort. And welcome to both of you. Good morning. Thank good morning. you. Representative, how is mandatory reporting doing more harm than good? So the mandatory reporting law, although we know had good intentions, the issue comes up with timing. A lot of times when uh, a victim of domestic violence would come into a hospital and law enforcement would be involved. There were many times by the time the patient got out of the hospital, um, the perpetrator would have been arrested and actually released sometimes under municipal court by the time the the victim got home and therefore escalating even potential more violence. And do you have solid numbers behind that or was it more anecdotal that this was happening? You know, the advocates that really work with domestic violence survivors are the ones who brought this bill forward to me, and they had a number of actual stories, and I met with survivors of domestic violence situations who had gone through this exact same thing. So I'm sure there are numbers out there, and the advocates may have them, but when it came time to really convince me to sponsor this bill, it was those direct stories, because even one story I feel like could be too many. So the idea was that... um Victims of domestic violence uh, would show up to a hospital or other medical facility and the doctor or nurse being required to contact the police did so. And that process was in a way so quickly dispatched with that by the time the person got home, they were in danger again with their abuser. Uh, But were there cases where mandatory reporting worked well? Are you throwing the baby out with the bathwater to some extent? You know, I, I think part of it also, it, it's there may be times where that worked well. But the problem is at the times when it didn't work well, and it's not necessarily the exact timing of them getting home and facing the perpetrator. A lot of times this situation where law enforcement gets involved, the time where law enforcement gets involved in these types of situations can be dangerous. And it's very critical that the person who has been the survivor, the victim, has a plan to get out of these relationships because the first call to law enforcement isn't necessarily the end of these relationships. A lot of times it's just another piece of the complicated puzzle um, when we're talking about these abusive relationships and trying to really maintain a way, a successful path forward for these people to get out of these relationships and move forward with their lives. Okay, and you say that this gives the victim more of that flexibility to build a game plan, if you will. I understand that Absolutely. You, you were hesitant at first to, to sponsor this, is that right? Sure. You know, when you first hear that, uh, you know, we're going to take away mandatory reporting, you, the first thought I had was, well, I don't want perpetrators of domestic violence to not be prosecuted. And that was my initial gut reaction, which I feel like a lot of people had that initial reaction. But when you actually start working through the process, working through the way the law was working and understanding fully what the intention of this new law is, you see that this is actually going to build a pathway forward to make sure that the survivor of the abusive relationship gets the help that they need, that they move forward out of these relationships, and that the perpetrator themselves do end up getting prosecuted. Because a part of this bill isn't just that um, 
you know, medical professionals are turning a blind eye. What it states is if the survivor the, gives a survivor input in what's happening with their lives next when they come into the hospital, and it really gives them a way to be a part of the process instead of simply being told what's going to happen to them next. This new law removes mandatory reporting for medical professionals. So that includes doctors, physicians, surgeons, physician assistants, nurses. Uh, There are many professionals working in other fields that are still required to report domestic abuse. And there are still some situations in which doctors must report abuse as well. For instance, if a patient, I think, is under the age of 18. Is that right, doctor? That would be different reporting. That would be child abuse. And so that would even go to a different agency. Got it. So that's not covered under this change. How do you think this changes the doctor-patient relationship? Improves it in your mind? I think it does. And medicine recently has been changing to focus more on what patients want and engaging patients in their care actively. I think this allows a patient, or in this case, a victim of violence, to be empowered and help make decisions on what they want to do and how they want to do, how they want to move forward in in seeking the care and the justice that they need. Doesn't that imply, though, that the victim is able to voice that and that under the old way of doing things, it was automatically reported? Um, are there some patients who simply won't have the nerve to approach a doctor and and express clearly what their desires are? I think that is possible. And I think there are um, patients and victims out there that right now don't come forward to tell us out of fear of what will happen. A lot of the power is taken away from victims when they are in a domestic violence situation. I think as physicians, we want to help support them get the care they need in a non-judgmental way. And I think um, it can be a barrier knowing that law enforcement will get involved no matter what when you come and seek care. I want to say that another exception that's carved out in this is if the injury is uh, really, really serious, if it's visible like a gunshot wound or... Uh, you know, a stabbing wound or something like that, there would still be the requirement to report. Is that correct? Yes. I think even dog bites are on that list, as a dog can be a lethal weapon. Oh. Uh, do, do you fear, and, and how will you monitor going forward, I suppose, Representative Esgar, if this change is having the right, uh, in your estimation, effects? You know, I think we're going to continue to work with the people who work with survivors of domestic violence every single day, the advocates. And a part of this new law is simply saying that when a victim comes into the hospital, the they have to have an active role in what's going to happen next. And the two choices that are going to be made by medical professionals is I will call the law enforcement if you so desire me to. However, if you deny me calling the law enforcement I am going to have, they have to direct them to a domestic violence advocate, somebody who can help these people that are in these situations really work through the process to figure out how they can find a path out of this relationship. And I think that alone, we don't do that right now. We don't really have structures in place for medical uh, professionals right now to really push the um, advocacy efforts that happen across the entire state to help people get out of these situations. And I think that alone, that piece of it, 
is going to actually encourage more people and give people the tools they need to get out of these relationships because it's not just as simple as saying, well, you sh- this person's been arrested. You need to get out now and pack up and go because we all know we wish things would be that simple, but life isn't that simple. And it takes a long process and it takes a lot of tools and a, a lot of steps to be able to get out of these types of relationships. And that's part of this bill is to make sure that we are equipping people um, who are surviving these types of relationships with the tools they need to get out of these relationships as well. Prosecutors came out against the bill at the Capitol. Boulder's uh, Deputy District Attorney Tim Johnson testified at a hearing earlier this year, and he said this bill, quote, puts domestic violence back in the shadows. He's also said that he's concerned this would send victims back into abusive relationships. Uh, Dr. Wachtel, do you have any sense that this will um, reduce a doctor's engagement with a patient on this issue, or do you think it has the opportunity to increase it? I think it has the opportunity to increase it. And I think that there are physicians um, both for and against this bill. I think that everyone wants to have the best outcomes in mind for their patients. Um, And it came down to there wasn't evidence that mandated reporting prevents serious physical violence or death, which is ultimately the end outcome that we're hoping to prevent um, in the states that do have this law. Versus the states that do not, there, the there's majority no clear do benefit. Not, the majority do not have mandatory reporting as Colorado does, at least for the next less than 24 hours. Correct. <laughs> and I, I started my training in a state that did not have that. So moving to Colorado was a, an interesting experience for me. Representative, I understand that you've had your own experiences with domestic abuse. And I wonder how that influenced your work on this mandatory reporting legislation. Yeah, I, you know, I'm a I'm a two-time survivor of domestic violence, once in a high school relationship you know, as a teen and another um, in my early 20s. And that wasn't my intention behind this bill. The advocates came to me not even knowing those stories, just wanting me to really listen and, and see if I can help. And it wasn't ever my intention to make this my own personal crusade by any means. And in fact, the story of my own life didn't come out until the end of testimony during the committee hearing. You know, we I think it was Representative Melton hit the nail on the head that this is about empowering people to make decisions to change their lives versus someone telling them what's going to happen with their life next. And it struck a chord in me um, that really made me kind of sit up and take notice. And my emotions kind of took over and I was able to tell my story in that hearing. And it makes so much sense because for so long, I know what it is to be in these relationships, and I know what it is to feel powerless and to feel like you don't have a say-so in what's happening with your life. You're just kind of going through life. And when people are coming to the hospital actually seeking medical care, the last thing they need is someone else taking that power of what's going to happen tomorrow away from them. And instead, let's, let's equip people, medical professionals, whose job it is to make people whole, make people healthy. Let's let them help equip these people with the tools they need to feel empowered and to move forward and to get out of these type of relationships. You mentioned Representative Melton. That's Jovan Melton, who's also in the General Assembly. Uh, I guess lastly, any fears that this could send an emboldening message to abusers? I I don't have that fear. Part of the bill as well is that the, the survivor can actually ask that the medical professionals document the injuries. And those documentations can be put into the um, medical profile. And if at a later time they decide to press charges or they decide to move forward and bring law enforcement in, they have the injuries documented. So I feel like 
this really is a win-win situation because they can go in, get the medical treatment that they need that a lot of times um, survivors have actually omitted or have decided not to go get because they were afraid of the outcome. So they get treatment. They get medical treatment. They're working with people who are looking out for their sole good being and making sure that they can document these injuries for a later time and getting in contact with advocates who are going to give them the tools necessary to actually thrive and to survive and to get out of these relationships. I think as we heard from Dr. Wachtel, it's important that there be that connection, that pipeline between the medical professional in the doctor's office, in the hospital, and those uh, in the advocacy community who can help victims of domestic violence. I want to thank you both for being with us. We heard from State Representative Denea Esgar, a Pueblo Democrat, and Dr. Zach Wachtel. He's president-elect of the Colorado Academy of Family Physicians. Esgar's bipartisan bill to change mandatory reporting for health care workers goes into effect tomorrow. Mountain biker Dave Weens has more medals than you can shake a tire pump at. He's a six-time champion of the Leadville Trail 100, a two-time World Cup winner, and a U.S. national mountain biking champion. Weens can brag that he has outpedaled Lance Armstrong and Floyd Landis, and now he tackles new challenges as director of the International Mountain Bicycling Association. And Dave Weens joins us by phone from Gunnison. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for having me on. This association advocates for low-impact riding and for volunteer trail work, among other things. And I'll say that you're a strong advocate of bread-and-butter mountain biking. And you plan to focus on that, uh, leading this International Mountain Bicycling Association. What is bread-and-butter riding? Well, the the bread-and-butter riding, I guess, is just uh, one way we describe the riding that's very close to where people live hmm. uh, so they can access it uh, consistently. Mountain bikers love to go to places like Crested Butte and Moab and uh, the places that we uh, you know, read about in the magazines, but we don't all live in those places. And uh, mountain biking typically is a sport that people uh, like to do consistently. Mountain bikers um, and their fitness is important. Uh, the, I guess, sort of the, the mental aspect that, uh, any sort of a, a, you know, a physical or, or an activity that's outside of what you do, uh, on an everyday basis is, is valuable to them. So, uh, bread and butter mountain biking, those are trails close to where people live. And, you know, good examples uh, in the front range of Colorado would be Jefferson County open space, uh, Highlands Ranch. There's great trail systems, uh, you know, right there. Uh, close to where people live, Castle Rock, uh, the Springs, Gunnison, we've got the Hartman Rocks area. Uh, those are the places where people ride their mountain bikes most often. It's those, those big uh, sort of dream trips uh, up into the mountains, into the exotic places that, that uh, are, that's what they're thinking about. Yeah. But uh, those everyday trails are, are really important and vital. And Imba wants to continue to, to pursue creating those opportunities uh, all across the United States. We're going to hear that again, I imagine, IMBA, again, the International Mountain Bicycling Association, trail access in in wilderness, government regulation of trails, gosh, acceptance of electric bikes. Those are some of the thorny issues right now in the mountain biking world. Are are you coming in with a a new attitude on on any of those subjects? Well, the, the, I guess, 
e-mountain bikes, electric uh, assist mountain bikes, they are coming uh, into the United States this year in a bigger way than they have. They've been around for a number of years. Uh, they're quite popular in Europe, and there are what we call EMTBs, which are electric uh, assist mountain bikes, so that when you when you pedal, you get a little boost, and uh, we're starting to see more and more interest in those. Uh, Imba's uh, position has been that, that they're motorized, and it's a similar position that, that uh, both the U.S. Forest Service and the Bureau of Land Management uh, have right now. But you know, all three organizations are watching closely because what the electric assist uh, bicycles do is that they allow more people to ride, and that's a good thing. Uh, so it's, how, how uh, so just to explain that well the the way that an electric assist bicycle works is that there's there's no at least on the class one which are the uh the type of uh most common type of mountain bike there's no throttle you can't just push a button and, and accelerate away you have to pedal um but when you pedal the the electric motor gives you a little boost so uh you can choose how much of a boost you want there's usually settings from one to five and one gives you just a little bit of assistance, and five gives you, uh, you know, quite a bit of assistance. But uh, then your battery life is is dependent on which one you use. So, and how does that open up the sport in your mind? Well, it's just you know, pedaling a bicycle. Uh, while a lot of people love it, it's not um, necessarily easy for everybody. And it, I mean, there's a number of reasons that the uh, the e-assist mountain bikes, uh, in particular, are appealing. Older riders, riders who have ridden for a long time, and I was just having a conversation the other night at an 80th birthday party for one of the professors here at Western State. And uh, I was talking to a gentleman who had just, he, he had stopped riding mountain bikes. He had loved it, but he's you know close to 80. And uh, he had purchased a mountain bike, and he called it his fountain of youth. He said, you know, on setting five, uh, I'm, I'm 35 years old. On setting four, I'm 45 years old. On setting three, you know, he is able to actually go out and ride again, and he wasn't able to before. Uh, so that's just one aspect of it. Other people don't aren't able to ride as consistently. And in, in cycling, there's a consistent fitness element to it. You need to ride uh, fairly consistently to, to to enjoy the fitness gains. And if you don't do that uh, that often, um, you know it, it's harder. But with an e-assist bike, you could get on it. Or groups that have different fitness levels are able to uh, ride together because. Maybe part of the group are on you know traditional bikes that that don't have the e assist and uh, some of the uh, other riders that are not quite as strong or not quite as fit are on an e assist bike and they're all able to go out and enjoy an experience together. And so to clarify, you, you'd like to see these on more trails, on some trails, uh, limited numbers of trails. Yeah, no, there, there's a desire to uh, allow EMTBs on trails that are currently open to mountain bikes, but that are non-motorized. Mm -hmm. They're absolutely um, acceptable on all motorized trails. And there's, there's a lot of motorized trails in Colorado, the Rampart Range area, the Hartman Rocks area here near Gunnison, uh, some of the trails in the Cement Creek area up towards Crested Butte, uh, sections of um, the Monarch Crest are motorized. So but there is a desire to have um, e-mountain bikes um, be allowed on some non-motorized trails. I think the most, uh, the most prevalent position is that these decisions should be made by the local land managers in collaboration with local mountain bikers and other stakeholders and making, you know, make those decisions on a trail-by-trail -trail basis. When you think about all the different agencies that are responsible for creating regulations on, 
on the different types of public lands, it's, it's pretty daunting. U.S. Forest Service, BLM, those are some of the big ones, National Park Service, but then uh, counties, states, municipalities, some trails wind across, you know, two or three or more different jurisdictions. So it can be confusing to know um, where they are allowed and where they are not. And one thing that IMBA just wants to be cautious about, we've worked for 29 years. We're coming up on our 30th anniversary. The International Mountain Bicycling Association was created to protect mountain biking access for trails. And a lot of advocates have worked very hard for years and years and years to either earn access or to protect that access. And there's, there's certainly, you know, people out there who are concerned that the advent of EMTBs could potentially, in some areas, jeopardize that access. And that's really our caution. We, we get all of the great elements of, of the e-mountain bike, and uh, it's fantastic. And it's just like anything. Used responsibly, you really don't even know they're there. And there's plenty of, uh, of, of cases of this where uh, in Durango they're doing some, some testing and they're interviewing people and they'll, they'll be out riding on these e-bikes, and they'll come across other mountain bikers or trail users, and they'll start a conversation. Oh. And then they'll say, so, you know, I'm riding a, a, an electric-assist mountain bike, and generally the people are, are they, don't, they don't even have a clue. You know, there's no, there's no extra sound. They look just like a, a mountain bike. They're, they're pedaled. So there's certainly uh, a lot of effort to, to try to, um, you know, minimize the conflicts. But certainly I don't see a movement where, um, you know, someone's trying to get electric mountain bikes uh, to be legal on all non-motorized trails. Let, let me ask you, I'm um, just in particular about w- wilderness uh, and what what you see trail access being in wilderness for mountain bikes in general, not these e-assist bikes. Sure. Well, wilderness is it's very clear that that mountain bikes uh, are not allowed in in congressionally designated wilderness areas, and uh, IMBA doesn't uh, doesn't dispute or isn't uh, in any way trying to uh, change the Wilderness Act of 1964 to allow mountain bikes. IMBA does actively um, work to, uh, in times, redraw boundaries with other stakeholders that would allow us uh, access back to a trail that we may have lost to wilderness. We are, uh, and we advocate strongly to be involved in processes for creating new wilderness so that if we have some trails that we know uh, mountain bikers are currently using and enjoying, we can be part of the conversation to adjust the boundaries so that uh, the wilderness areas don't, uh, we don't lose more, uh, more trails to wilderness. So being involved in the forest planning process, being involved in any wilderness uh, proposals is really uh, an important part of, of what we do at IMBA. And in the last several years, you've seen this. Uh, I think that uh, there was a time when the, there was less, uh, I guess, resistance to, to wilderness proposals. And in the last several years, there's been more and more the motorized groups are becoming more organized. Uh, mountain bikers, obviously, are organized. So now what, what we're seeing, and I was part of a, a group up here called the Gunnison Public Lands Initiative, is all the different stakeholders come together around a table and because we all really have similar goals, and that's to protect the lands uh, that, that we all love to recreate on, whether you're a hunter or an angler or a mountain biker or a motorized user or a hiker, uh, a rancher, uh, our working uh, ranching families are part of the conversation, wilderness advocates. And we all get together and uh, really try to protect the landscape, but there are some, some alternative designations that we can use 
that will protect our, our public lands, but will allow different uses, including uh, mountain biking in some in some situations. Of course, there are some in the biking community who think that there ought to be more cycling on wilderness and that the act didn't intend to shut out mountain biking. But, but besides these thorny issues, you had some tough organizational problems to deal with. I understand that Subaru, a major sponsor, had pulled out of IMBA, uh, which resulted, I think, in some layoffs and cutbacks. The former director resigned. And you've so far focused on how much locals play a role in uh, in mountain biking and in trail advocacy. Is there a need for like a big international association like yours now? Or uh, do do the locals and their work take priority? Well, Ryan, that's a great question, and I, I do believe, uh, and, and we have this conversation where IMBA in some ways is uh, you know, a victim of our own success in that we built this network of chapters and local organizations and really uh, literally wrote the book on, on trail advocacy. In fact, uh, have written three books on trail advocacy that have become you know, the Bibles for local organizations, uh, how to manage the, the sport of mountain biking, how to build sustainable trails, how to maintain trails. And the local organizations are very effective. So as we move forward, it's just important that uh, as a national organization, we work on those those topics, those challenges that the, the local organizations can't. And, and uh, you know, access and policy at the national level and even at the state level uh, is an area that, that we can work in. Trying to um, work to get more mountain biking opportunities in more places around the country because there are you know, large areas where there are no mountain biking clubs or organizations. And those are still, you know, folks living in, in those communities uh, all over the country that would benefit from uh, a trail system close to their town. So yeah, it makes me wonder if you think the sport is as diverse racially or economically as well as you'd like. Uh, no, it's certainly not. At this point, we would love to see more diversity in the sport. There's always going to be the barrier of entry, which is a bicycle. And, um, you know, bicycles, there's some, some uh, less expensive bicycles, of course, you can spend thousands and thousands of dollars on them, but uh, an operating bicycle is, is, is a big part of being able to enjoy, uh, enjoy the sport of mountain biking. So, but as we do, uh, if we are able to get into some of these different communities and expose, uh, I guess, a different uh, demographic to um, you know, the benefits of, of mountain biking and cycling, hopefully we'll see, uh, you know, more diversity and, um, you know, some, some uh, diversity even in the, the economic, uh, you know, the, the part of it uh, where, yeah, it, it just, it, it's a challenge because uh, you, you have to have a bicycle yeah, and yeah, not everybody. Um, so it sounds like you'd, you'd like to make the sport more democratic, I suppose, in a way, but there are obstacles to that. I guess uh, we'll wrap up with mentioning the Leadville Trail 100, this grueling mountain bike race you've dominated for, gosh, I think a chunk of six years is coming up again this weekend. Will, will you be in it? I won't. Okay. I have not uh, ridden in Leadville since 2010, but um, I've, uh, I'm certainly uh, aware and I, I talk to a lot of uh, people. I know everyone's getting excited and have been training hard and um, are hoping for a good day on Saturday up in Leadville. Thanks so much for being with us. You bet, Ryan. Thank you. Dave Weens is the new executive director of the International Mountain Bicycling Association. He joined us by phone from Gunnison. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
On the first page of the new novel Girl in Snow, you learn a high school student has been murdered in the made-up suburb of Broomsville, Colorado, on the Front Range. The girl's body is found on a playground with her neck broken. Girl in Snow is a whodunit that also explores whether you can still be a good person if you do a bad thing. The murder is not the only bad thing that occurs in this book. And author Danya Kukovka is in the studio. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. What was the seed for this book, would you say? Um, well, I grew up in Fort Collins, which is obviously a large city and not a very tiny suburb. Um, but I I was really interested, um, you sort of already touched on it, interested in talking about um, good people who do bad things or vice versa. Um, and I've done a lot of reading um, that I, I took inspiration from. Um, one of my favorite books is The Virgin Suicides by Jeffrey Eugenides. Mm. Um, and that's a, a wonderful novel about a small community, very focused on voyeurism. Um, it's told from the perspective of a, a group of boys um, told in the communal we who are looking into a home where a tragedy is occurring. And I sort of read this book and thought about the interesting perspective that he uses and the idea for the main character of Girl in Snow came pretty directly from that. There is a lot of voyeurism in this book, Mm -hmm. which we'll dig into. I want to point out that you're, I think, 25 and you started writing this when you were 19. Mm -hmm. So pretty soon after graduating high school in Fort Collins, this book began. So congratulations. Thank you. A literary debut. It's getting like rave reviews. And the the, uh, murder victim in this case is Lucinda Hayes. Uh, she's found in a playground, as I said, her body twisted in an unnatural position. And almost immediately, a young man named Cameron becomes one of the suspects. And I, I want to focus on him uh, because part of the book is told from his perspective. And we learn pretty quickly that Cameron does something called statue nights. Mm. Uh, speaking of voyeurism, what are statue nights? So statue nights describe Cameron's state of um, obsession with Lucinda, the girl who has died. Um, He stands outside her house and looks into her bedroom window. And in these moments, he becomes so still, he imagines that he's a statue. Um, He's very creepy, but I love him. (laughs) It's interesting you say that because he is. He's Mm -hmm. very creepy. He's a voyeur. He's in some ways a stalker. But you wind up liking him. Mm -hmm. How did you manage to make that possible? That was really um, the axis for writing this book for me. I was really interested in seeing how far I could stretch a reader's empathy, Hmm. um, sort of pushing a character to the boundaries of what's socially accepted and socially allowed, um, and seeing if there is a way that he can still be sympathetic and loved by a reader. So how can you make a stalker or a voyeur sympathetic? Hmm. Give me examples of what you did, the the kind of trimmings you add that make someone likable who's doing like a really gross thing. Yeah, I mean, he has a, Cameron specifically has a different way of processing the world. So he has sort of an obsession with anatomy um, and Lucinda's a ballet dancer. And there are these ways that he sees beauty in in situations that may from the outside seem creepy. Um, and And for me, it was very much about focusing on their relationship as a sort of tragic love, even though it's it's quite perverted in some ways. He's also a collector, Cameron is. Mm-hmm. He has a collection of pens, the collection of photos from when mom was young. Mm-hmm. And uh, perhaps most notably, the collection of people who did terrible things. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that last collection. 
Yeah, so that that is the most interesting of his collections, I think, because he recognizes himself in some of it. And he also recognizes his father. In His father is a character who has actually done something truly terrible and has been, you know, publicly shamed for it. And Cameron's, in many ways, trying to reckon with this um, through his collections. And so this goes back to this theme of how good a person can be in spite of their worst behavior, Mm -hmm. which I'll get back to. I want to know how you've answered that for yourself. But, you know, Mm -hmm. so much of the focus of this book uh, are young people, Mm -hmm. high schoolers. How is high school for you? Oh, I had a great time in high school. You did? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I I went to Poudre High School and I I really loved it. I had a good group of friends and great teachers. Um, But, you know, high high school can be horrible and awkward and is horrible and awkward for everyone, right? And And so it was for you? Yes, in some ways, of course. I mean, I think just being that age is horrible and awkward for everybody. There's no way around the, the... pain and insecurity of being a teenager, right? Um, And that's why I chose to write about teenagers, because I think they're so explosive and so volatile. And in many ways, I I, I think that that makes great fodder for fiction. Volatility makes great fodder Mm -hmm. for fiction. Yeah. So to this idea, Danya Kukavka, her new book is called Girl in Snow. It's her debut uh, novel. She grew up in Fort Collins. Uh, To this idea of how how uh, someone can still be good and yet do bad things. Did you did you come to answer that maybe even for yourself? Mm-hmm. I, I think the answer for me really lies in the notion that none of us are good or bad. There are always, always shades of goodness and of evil. And some people veer in one direction or another. Um, but in the end, there's no calculating it or quantifying it. And so I, what I'm trying to say, I guess, is that there's no answer. <laughs> okay. So you don't believe in pure evil? N- no, I don't. I I don't think – maybe there are some real, real, you know, psychopaths out there who do horrible things and know that they're horrible and just don't care. But I think for the most part, you have to justify it to yourself in some way, right? And that was what – that's what Cameron goes through in the book. I'd like people to hear your writing, uh, which mm-hmm. I think – captures beautifully how mundane life can be, but also how moving it can be at the same time. So at the memorial service for this young woman who's been murdered, Lucinda, people write messages on poster board. And I'd like to have you read a message that a teacher leaves, which is followed by what a classmate thinks of all the messages that have been left for this dead girl. Mm -hmm. Dear Lucinda, it was such a pleasure to have you in class this year. I know chemistry was never your strong suit, but you worked hard and you excelled. It breaks my heart to think of all the potential the world lost this week. I speak on behalf of the entire faculty at Jefferson High School when I say you are an incredible contribution to our student body and you will be terribly missed. Mrs. Hawthorne. I wonder what they'll do with the poster boards once all this is over. I doubt Lucinda's family will want them. I wonder if the man who takes out the garbage will look at these scribbled notes and think what a great girl Lucinda Hayes must have been. How humble, how beautiful, how smart, how kind. Hmm. The young woman who wonders what will become of the poster board is named Jade. She's Mm -hmm. a sort of another misfit in this story. And I I was entranced by that line, I think, because it it makes you think of the detritus of grief. Mm -hmm. You know, what happens to poster board? That it was a moment sacred and I guess can just get dumped into the trash. Uh, Jade, this character, comes from an abusive home. 
Her mother is a violent drunk. And, you know, in general, there's a lot of violence in this book. Of course, it starts mm-hmm. with a murder. How is it to write violence for you? Um, I'm always careful when writing violence. I am conscious of writing violence. Um, but I think it's important. The world can be a violent place, and it's important to show that in certain circumstances. What does it mean to be careful about writing violence? I'm, I try to be conscious. Um, it's, I try, it, it's never gratuitous for me. Mm-hmm. It's never gratuitous. What, what, what's, the, what's the line there? Because here the body is found in a mm-hmm. really uh, unnatural, disturbing position. Yeah. She's, as the title implies, Girl in Snow, she's, she's frozen in the cold. Did you write and, and rewrite violence to achieve perhaps that, that fine line? Yes. And what I was really trying to do with the violence of the way Lucinda is found is to talk about perception. Um, The things we project onto other people, the the people that we think they are, maybe isn't always who they actually are. Um, And by having a dead girl, only her body, she can't speak for herself in the snow. I think it's a really striking image. Um, And it's the book is much more about how other people perceive her than who she actually is. Place is really important in this novel. Colorado's mountains, its dry air, its sun. What sense memories do you have of living here? You're in New York now, I should yes, say. Yes, yes. I've lived in New York for seven years now. Um, and when I come back, I'm always just struck by how, how beautiful it is here. I kind of forget. Um, and then I come back. And I, it's also sort of a jarring beauty, I think, the front range. Because, you know, you have the huge mountains on one side. And then you have these towns tucked into the base of the mountains. And on the other side, you have these open plains. And, and to me, it's kind of ominous in some ways, um, which I love. <laughs> What's ominous about it? The mountains looming in the background mm-hmm. or the, the sort of vastness of the plains? What is I it? think those two things together ah. make, it, make it ominous, yeah. And it has that quality in the book, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, in this book, you include several mentions of another book from 1985, Love in the Time of Cholera mm-hmm. by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Uh, it, I, I always love it when there are sort of little Easter eggs, little mm-hmm. little mentions of other books in books. What does that book mean to you, Love in the Time of Cholera? You know, I actually haven't read that book in a very long time. Okay. Um, I, I wanted, so there's a character in this book who is an immigrant, and she um, has a couple of defining traits that her, her husband struggles to see. Um, he's a police officer, and they have a serious language barrier. Um, and I really wanted her to have things that were her own, and in many ways for her, it's the Spanish language is her own. Mm. Um, and she has these sort of tokens. There's also a Pablo Neruda poem in there um, that she loves and she leaves as a token for someone. So it was really about giving. I I was less focused on the text and more focused on giving this character power. Power. Her own inner life. Exactly. You work in the publishing industry yes. as an assistant editor. Mm-hmm. And as I said, you're, you're 25, started this novel at 19. It is getting a lot of praise. Are your colleagues... Authors, editors, are they jealous of your success at all? If they are, they certainly don't say it. They're They're... (laughs) very excited for me. (laughs) Okay, they're good at that. Yeah. (laughs) Um, How did you land the publishing deal? I mean, did you know someone in the industry or did you have to act like an outsider to make this happen? I stayed very far away from my own job when the book was going out on submission. Um, so in that way, in that sense, I, I had to act like an outsider because we had agreed that, you know, the publishing house I work for was not going to publish the book. I uh. think it would just be kind of a conflict of interest. Um, and I had been, you know, living in New York for a long time and meeting a lot of people who were in the book world. Um, and so in that way, I was 
very involved in in the industry already, which was probably helpful. Helpful. Mm -hmm. Did you hear as you were writing it, I don't know, like the voice of yourself as an editor screaming at the voice of of yourself as the writer? Yes, absolutely. And I think one of the hardest things about being a writer and and an editor is that when you're an editor, what you're really looking for in a book is to be just sucked into a world, completely sucked into a world. You want to ignore everything else. You want to be totally lost in it. And as a writer, you're writing towards that. You have to write with that goal in mind. And it is so hard to get there. Yeah, with the other voice in your head. Yes, exactly. Uh-huh. Well, thank you for being with us. Congratulations. Yes, thank you so much. It's Fort Collins native Danya Kukovka. She's written Girl in Snow about a murder in a fictional Colorado suburb. You can read an excerpt at cprnews.org. And tonight she'll be at the Tattered Cover Bookstore on Colfax in Denver. The Brown Palace Hotel in downtown Denver turns 125 this weekend. Famous guests have included Theodore Roosevelt, Queen Marie of Romania, and the Beatles. Let's listen back to my 2013 interview about the Brown with hotel historian Deborah Faulkner. She says leading up to the hotel's construction in 1892, Denver was booming. Ever since the arrival of the railroads in 1870s, it really was the center of the Rocky Mountain Empire, um, commercial center in particular. And 17th Street was called the Wall Street of the West. We have all these multi-story stone and brick buildings going up, including the state capitol um, over on Capitol Hill. It took a long time for that one to be finished. It kind of went in fits and starts. But by 1892, it was close to being occupiable. They first moved in in 1895. And so to reflect that, it you know, downtown Denver needed a commensurate hotel, I guess. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of really rather grand hotels already in Denver, but they are, were all down at the other end of 17th Street, kind of clustered around Union Station because that's where everybody arrived in town. Yeah. Um, but with the Capitol going up, they sensed a need for something grand much closer to that. And the name Brown, of course, lots of people might think Molly Brown, mm-hmm. but it's, it's not Molly Brown. It's mm-hmm. the Brown who dedicated, uh, donated rather, mm-hmm. the land for the Capitol. Absolutely. In a stroke of real estate genius. Um, It was right in the middle of his homestead property, which really was quite a ways away from where most of Denver was growing up. Um, But he had, um, it was centered on a hill that he had called Brown's Bluff, and he donated 10 acres to be the site of the state capitol, not because he was especially generous. (laughs) He knew as that building rose, all of his surrounding property would suddenly be in great demand. Genius. This is Henry (laughs) Cords Brown. Mm -hmm. And is he the one who builds the hotel? I mean, not with his bare hands, right? right? No, no. (laughs) Well, but he was a carpenter and a builder and a little bit of an architect. And Mm. he worked um, pretty much hand in glove with the architect, Frank um, E. Edbrook, um, on the building. He was the second architect on the Capitol. So um, Henry Brown was acquainted with him through that. And um, yeah, he was the financer as well as coming up with a lot of the design. So the architect Mm -hmm. of the Brown Palace is the second architect on the state Capitol. Exactly. Okay, that's cool. I do imagine that that the brown represents a level of luxury that is not necessarily available elsewhere in Denver. I mean, Denver might still be a, a rough and tumble town in some ways. Is is that true? 
Um, in some ways, yes, but it is definitely becoming much more sophisticated with all the money that's pouring in. Were there um, features of the brown that, you know, today a hotel might say we have mm-hmm. yeah, one yeah. million thread count sheets? You know, uh, what what would be the features <laughs> of the brown that attracted the, the, the best of the best? Well, let's see. They, one of their big boasts was that they were an absolutely fireproof building. Um, they were one of the first steel skeleton structures um, west of the Mississippi. Huh. And so the whole superstructure is iron, steel, and concrete, not a bit of wood. And um, that was a big boast of theirs. They had and they still have their own artesian well that supplies all the water to the hotel. Is it under the hotel? Um, yeah, it's just off the corner of the uh, ship tavern. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's 172, wait a minute, 720 feet deep. Wow. Incredible. And, it's, and it's, it's the sole source of water or just a source it's of water? It's the sole source. Okay. You, you flush your toilet with artesian well water. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tagline. Yeah. There is a, a rumor that in the early days, a tunnel connected the Brown Palace Hotel to a brothel mm-hmm. across the street. Mm-hmm. True or false? True. Um, you hesitate. <laughs> Well, I don't think it was constructed as a passageway for hotel guests to go to the brothel. <laughs> That's what I like to clarify. Um, but uh, the Navarre on the other side of the street, now owned by Philip Anschutz, when he was doing some restorations in the late 90s, they discovered in the basement a set of tracks proceeding in a tunnel straight for the Brown Palace until it runs into a brick wall under Tremont Street. And um, the tracks make me believe it was for coal cars between the basement furnaces back in the day. Oh, I see. Um, but I think we can say Safely bet a few people went around the coal cars, jumped in the coal cars, whatever it took. We'll say creative uses over the years. To get to, <laughs> to the, the other side of the in street. In its notorious days, yes. Well, we, we mentioned Molly Brown uh, saying that, you know, it's not the Brown behind the Brown Palace, but mm-hmm. she did she did live there for mm-hmm. a time. Lots of uh, big names. Yes, she did, um, especially in her later years when she separated from her husband, J.J., and spent most of her time in Newport, Rhode Island with the social set. Um, so her Capitol Hill mansion was generally rented out during those years. And when she did return to Denver, and that includes 101 years ago last April after the Titanic disaster, mm-hmm. she did stay at the Brown Palace and uh, was Pretty well known. In fact, for several Christmases, she would uh, put a little tree at the front desk, decorate it, and just a few days before the holiday, personally hand out small gifts to every bellman, doorman, wait staff, you know, housekeeper. So she she was well known at the hotel, definitely. You know, every year the, the grand champion steer from the National Western mm-hmm. Stock Show is put on display in the lobby of the Brown Palace <laughs> Hotel. This is like the closest I can think of to a bull in a china shop. Uh, and people sip tea right next to the Pen, you know, if you have tea at the Brown that day. Mm-hmm. Uh, just briefly, how did that tradition start? goes all the way back to 1945. And a gentleman named Dan Thornton, who later became Colorado governor in 1950. Maybe the namesake for Thornton, the town? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, at the time, he was a rancher and a Hereford breeder in Gunnison County. And good friends with the Betchers, who were the owners of the hotel at the time, because he always stayed there for the stock show. And when his two Hereford steers auctioned that year for unprecedented 53 thousand dollars each it made national news and so ck betcher asked him to exhibit them in the lobby for the national media and that was the beginning of the tradition and it's also consumed usually at the brand, well for right? decades that was the further tradition for the hotel to purchase the grand champion at auction and serve him in the restaurant so i always say you got to meet him and eat him not the case, though, anymore? Not anymore. Okay, not no, anymore. No. I understand the hotel is somewhat of a landmark for Chinese tourists visiting Denver. 
Yeah, occasionally we will get big buses of Chinese tourists who are all looking for our room three twenty one, and that's because the、uh, president of the Republic of China, the fir- the father of independent China, Sun Yat Sen, was actually staying at the Brown Palace when China, the Republic of China, declared its independence when it overthrew the Qing Dynasty. And so the room he stayed in is a bit of a,、um, a pilgrimage spot for these、uh, Chinese tourists. It's almost as though George Washington stayed there on the night of July Fourth, seventeen seventy-six, for us. That is Deborah Faulkner, historian for the Brown Palace. The hotel marks one hundred twenty-five years on Saturday. That's Colorado Matters for today. You can follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters and on Facebook CPR News.、Uh, we're also a podcast. You can stream us、uh, through your favorite podcast service. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News.